Wisdom raises her voice to all mankind. Listen, for she has trustworthy things to say. Choose her instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. She has insight. She has power. She loves those who love her, and those who seek her find her. She was formed long ages ago. The Lord brought her forth at the very beginning, when the world came to be. She was there when He set the heavens in place, and when He marked out the foundations of the earth. So listen to her instruction and be wise. For those who find wisdom find life. Thank you. Andrew, they listen to you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for the welcome. And hello to friends in Cambridge and Leicester as well. So I'm Rachel Gardner. My husband and I are delighted to be with you. You might have seen me run with my daughter because she's so excited about the kids group this morning. And we're from North London. Anybody here been to North London, know where North London is? Give me a cheer. Yes, I'm among friends. That's wonderful. And thank you for the introduction. Dave and Karen, thank you so much for the welcome as well this morning. Um, and it's great to be with you. And I am really passionate about youth ministry and youth culture and the church of Jesus Christ having something compelling and powerful and life-bringing to speak into this generation of young people. And it means that I'm constantly vigilant for where I see signs of, actually, God's kingdom needs to break in there. And last weekend, um, I saw in a shop, actually, my friend saw and took a photo and sent it to me, in a shop in Blue Water, a fashion store that sells to all ages of women, but particularly to teenage girls. I saw a neon sign on the wall that said this, send me nudes, and nudes means um, naked selfies, so photographs, images of your whole body naked or part of your body naked, and my friend sent it saying, Rachel, is this okay? Is this an okay message to be flooding out there into youth culture? And we together thought, no, that's not okay, it's not a safe message, it's not a legal message, it's not a kind or a good or a true message, and we want the wisdom of God's relationships to be unleashed on young people, even when they're shopping in fashion brands. So do you know what we did, us middle-aged ladies? We started an online petition, oh yes! And do you know what, in 24 hours, we had 9,000, well, by the end of the week, it was 9,000 signatures, and good on them, the shop covered the sign, then they took the sign down. <laughs> Isn't that great? And what excited me, it wasn't just Christians that signed the petition, it was grandparents and parents and radical feminists and friends in the Muslim community because God's wisdom is true across the board. People recognize God's wisdom, don't they? So I'm so excited to be unpacking today with all you wonderful people some beautiful, brilliant, life-changing truths about relationships because let's face it, relationships aren't complicated at all, are they? I mean, they're so easy, really. I'm surprised you came to a service on relationships. Oh, no. 
they are complicated. And friends, the words that I'm bringing to you today, I want them to be life-bringing for you. And I want you to know they come from a humble heart, and I'm somebody that often gets a lot of this stuff wrong. But thank the Lord for his grace. I just want you to know that the words I'm bringing to you, I don't want to be kind of floating in judgment above you. I long for these words to bring you life and wholeness and peace. And isn't it wonderful that as we open ourselves to God's word, as we speak God's word over our lives and over each other, the spirit of Jesus, I think, whispers into our ears, you can trust this. You're okay, you're home, nothing lacking, nothing missing, deep shalom. So that's my prayer for you. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to them, if it wasn't for you, I'd be the best looking person in church this morning. Go on, say that. (laughs) Wonderful. Great. Well, Andrew very kindly uh, introduced me as co-founding Romance Academy, which is right, and it came off the back of a BBC Two documentary series called No Sex, Please, We're Teenagers. And it was one of those fly-on-the-wall experiments where my colleague and I, both Christian youth workers, uh, found six teenage boys, 15-year-olds from North London, six teenage girls, same sort of age, who were not Christians, not from a faith background, and we said for nine months, We'd love you just to challenge yourselves to put a different framework over your life. You haven't got to believe in God, you haven't got to become Christians, but we'd love to see what it looks like in your life when you take on board God's wisdom for relationships. And the specific focus was that for nine months they were going to challenge themselves to not be sexually active. We didn't like camp outside their houses with binoculars, we didn't ask them each week, so how's the no sex thing going? We trusted them immensely, but they trusted us hugely and really really led us into the wrestle and the journey of that. And for three of them, although we never did a a conventional Bible study, three of them became Christians because they tasted and saw that God's way is good and brings life. But um, immediately after the programs were aired, I had the great privilege of going and speaking to Christian youth groups and churches and youth festivals about this topic, which is such an honor except I'm just a flawed human being. And there was a period of time where I got a bit grumpy. And I was like, why do I have to go around to all these churches? Why aren't churches talking about things like porn and masturbation and sexual desire and how far is too far and dating? Like, God has so much to say about all of this. Why do I have to get in my little Nova car and drive around and talk about it? So one evening, I turned up to a youth event in that attitude. Not good, is it? Um, and I was, I was loving these young people, but I was a bit grumpy that I was having to stand up there and do the talk. Um, and I'm going to share with you what I said, because it doesn't paint me in a good light whatsoever. So I'm being a bit vulnerable and exposing myself here, guys. So these beautiful young people walked into the youth event. We worshipped Jesus together. They were awesome teenagers. And I got up to speak in this attitude. And do you know what I opened by saying? It's so, I can't believe I did this. I opened by saying, oh, just to let you know, I'm a little bit of a body language expert, which I'm not. Um, And I've been watching you guys, freaky, uh, as you've been worshipping and and as you've walked into the venue. And I I can just tell by the amount of swag you've got and like what you're wearing and who you're looking at and like how your hair is parted to one side. I just know by looking at you, those of you who are already sexually active, 
mean, what a horrendous thing to say. Anyway, so these poor young people are went, Ugh! and then, get this, it gets worse. Then I said, oh, now I know. Oh, how horrendous is that? And I apologise to them and I apologise to the leaders because the fact is, there is no way of knowing what's going on in someone's life just by the way they had their hair parties to one side. But I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I was convinced that everybody could see what I was getting up to. And I remember one church leader saying, remember not to have sex before marriage because Jesus is sat in the bedroom. And I was like, ah, that's the most freaking thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> And yet, in the States, there is this emeritus professor of psychology in Washington University called John Gottman, this bloke here. And uh, he, over 40 years, has been videotaping, with their permission, newlyweds having a 15-minute conversation over something that is causing a bit of conflict in the house, in their, in their relationship. And he films them for 15 minutes. And over 40 years of filming and just coding these conversations, he and his team can predict to 94%, ladies and gentlemen, which of these couples will last and which of these relationships will end? He's called the prophet of divorce. How horrendous is that? Oh my goodness. And he does it because him and his team code the kind of little subtle interactions that are going on between these two people. And they are looking for four things. They call them the four horsemen. Okay, so this is, this is another, the serious heavy bit, the four horsemen. These are the four things that they are looking for in this conversation. Not, is this couple fighting? Are they arguing? Every relationship, there's argument, right? Yeah. But they're looking for four things. Number one, they're looking for defensiveness. Number two, they're looking for um, stonewalling, so withholding love, withholding affection. Number three, they're looking for criticism. And number four, and this is the one that they're like, actually, ultimately, this is the one indicator that will tell us if this couple will survive or not. Number four, they're looking for contempt. And all you eye rollers out there like me, I mean, that is the eye roll, isn't it? Like when your friend says something, you just roll your eyes. I mean, that, that is one of those kind of contempt cues, isn't it? Shall I tell you what contempt in action looks like? Uh, so this weekend, I was, um, my, my family and I last, last week were down in Cornwall at something called Creation Fest. And on Friday, we were driving back from Cornwall and, and everybody was on the road. Do you know those sorts of days where sat-nav tries to take you everywhere and everywhere you go there is gridlock and I was driving and I was fed up, I'm a North Londoner, I don't wait, I was fed up with queuing yet again for the junction knowing full well that these outside lanes were empty and I could just overtake and then do the whole oh sorry blonde I need to come in here kind of thing. So how bad is this? My husband is fast asleep. So I thought, yes, I'll get away with it. So I, I took, overtook and came really fast on the outside and then just literally shot in. That is contempt in action, ladies and gentlemen, because essentially what I was saying was, you guys can wait. I'm too important to wait. I will queue jump because I'm too important to wait. My, my needs, my need to get where I'm going home is more pressing than your need to get where you're going. Like contempt works itself out in all sorts of relationships, doesn't it? And this morning, what I really want to bring is some kind of Proverbs-wise kind of rebuffal. Like, how do we deal with contempt? Because contempt works itself out in every relationship. 
And so this morning, I'm going to be jumping around, sometimes talking about marriage, sometimes talking about dating relationships, sometimes talking about close friendships, sometimes talking about work. And I really want you, I mean, all the relationships we're in are kind of this wonderful swirl, aren't they? So we're going to be jumping around because I really want us to get a sense of what's God saying that can flow into all of our relationships. And John Gottman says the one to look out for is contempt. It's the idea that somehow you are worth less than me. And that can work out on a big scale. That can work out between nations and races and genders, can't it? Like the the stuff that's going on in Charlottesville at the moment in the States. Contempt on a national scale. Or it can work out in the small, the minutia. uh, Just not, not wanting to move your seats that someone else can get next to you. It can work out on all sorts of levels. And what does it mean for us as God's people to be people that demonstrate relationships that are free from that sense of having to load our superiority onto somebody else because we know where we get our sense of worth from. So we're going to look at uh, the book of Proverbs, and I know you've been following that through the last few weeks. And uh, wisdom in Proverbs, Proverbs is packed full of wisdom for all areas of life, including our intimate, close relationships. And in the middle, in, in Proverbs, around chapters 5 and 6, in the middle of some key wise sayings around how to avoid adultery, uh, having adultery, being unfaithful in relationships, right in the middle of that chunk of teaching are some incredible verses that kind of don't really make sense in the middle of that teaching. If you've got your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I'm going to look at verse 16. And as a youth worker, I carry a physical Bible around with me. I want the young people I work with, in the gangs that I work with, in the church that I work in, I want them to see that the wisdom for my life doesn't come from positive thinking or a set of ideas I've come up with. It comes from God's timeless word. And I want to wrestle with this. I want to love God's word more and more every day. So I'd encourage you to have your Bibles with you. So Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16. So right in the middle of these sections on how to avoid unfaithfulness, the Proverbs writer says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Things like a lying tongue, hands shed innocent blood, wicked plans. But number one, the first one that is named is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. Well, what are haughty eyes? Haughty eyes are when you look at somebody else from a a position of superiority and you say they're less than me. It's contempt, isn't it? I mean, this was written thousands of years before John Gottman's Love Lab ever got started. And right in the middle of this wisdom on relationships, the, the, the Proverbs writer gets what John Gottman gets years later, that actually the thing that will kill relationships more than anything else is contempt. The idea that somehow this person is not worth as much as me. They're not worth my love. They're not worth my time. If they're not giving me what I want, if we're not having as much sex in our marriage as I want, it's okay for me to go and use porn. Because actually what I want is more important. And when you see relationships through this lens, we suddenly have to challenge ourselves in a different way, don't we? What are the ways that in my church family, rather than showing love and kindness, I reveal contempt. That's a tough lesson, isn't it? That's a tough lesson.
So the Hebrew word for haughty is ruim, which means to be high and lofty. And the reason God hates it is because he sees the damage it does and because he alone is the one who is superior. He alone is the one who, if anybody could look down and judge, it's him, only him. And yet we know, don't we, as God saved, redeemed, restored people, that what does God do with his authority and his power? He looks at us with love. Oh my goodness, isn't that incredible? So we can trust God as being one with authority and power. Let's not take that onto ourselves. So how can we kill contempt in our relationships? And I've got three sort of big ideas, big hooks, big sort of signposts to say our intimate relationships, whether they are with a marriage partner, whether we are picking up our lives after divorce or the end of a, of a dating relationship, whether we are with our children, our stepchildren, our work colleagues, our neighbours, our Christian family. Some three big ideas for us to wrestle with this morning. So number one, how do we kill contempt? How do we have wise, godly relationships? Number one, be dazzled. Be dazzled. When did somebody last look at you like this? Like, wow! You're brilliant. When did you get last looked at like that? The word for it is admiration. And the Proverbs, the wisdom in Proverbs 5.19 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. Be, and then get this word, this is the dazzled word, be intoxicated always in her love. Admiration, intoxication is the belief that the person you love is worthy of your love and respect. You don't love them in spite of themselves. Brilliant, yes, that is worth a clap, thank you. You don't love them in spite of themselves. You love them because in them you see something of God, of the divine fire. You see something worth loving and respecting. And it might be the person you love, you've got to be calling that out of them. It's a bit dormant in there. And with you, they need to learn how to fly. So out of your lips needs to come encouragement, not shredding them down. So intoxicated. I mean, it's an interesting word, isn't it? In scripture, be intoxicated. So this is the marriage bit. Be intoxicated with your spouse. Be intoxicated with the person that you're married to, the person that you're dating with. Are, you, are your eyes drawn to others or are you intoxicated by getting to know more of them? I remember once speaking at the Houses of Westminster. I, I sometimes go and speak about um, sex ed in schools and making sure that the curriculum that we that teach children is broad and wise and has good, good values and good news in there for all young people. Um, and, and one guy that I was on a board with, sat on this board with, he was so frustrated. And he said, why is it that you Christians are so oppressed when it comes to sex? Like, you're the thought moral police. Like, if anyone out there is having any fun thoughts about sex, you guys are like, woo, 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 gotta shut that down, gotta stop that. I mean, where does that, why are you obsessed with abstinence? And I said to him, how long have you got? Do you really want to talk about this? He said, yeah, I do. I said, let's go and find a coffee shop. Let's chat. And I have my Bible with me because this is where my wisdom comes from and my life experience. Um, and so we chatted. And I took him to different passages in Scripture, including this one. And I said, you know what? We, we believe that sexuality, sexual desire is a gift from God. Like, it's a mighty force. 
And actually, because it is, we don't want to play with that. Like, people are too precious to be kind of used up by us trying out some stuff. Actually, we want to be kind of having committed relationships where actually we can allow that kind of excess to flourish, not being used against somebody else, but together, consensually, mutually, beautifully, privately, powerfully, worshipfully. He was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, yeah, next time you see Christians, that'll change your mind about them, won't it? And I do remember once when I was a very young Christian saying to the very conservative church I was part of, shall we have a sign outside the church that says, if you want like a better sex life in your marriage, come to church. And the church was like, no. And, I was, and I, now I can see the sense in that. But I was just waking up to the idea that actually we have good news about sex. Before we have a message of no, we have a message of promise and a message of yes. So be intoxicated. So how do we get intoxicated? Well, remind yourself of your friend's great qualities. Are you going to have lunch with your friends today after the service? Why not chat about, you know, actually what I see in you that I really admire is your ability to blah, 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 blah. Call it out of each other and say them out loud. Be the first to speak admiringly on what they are like. Now, my husband is very, very good at this. When Jason and I uh, moved to the church we're in now, Jason took over as youth pastor. And we noticed that in our church youth group, the culture was banter. And the banter actually was quite a thin veil for ripping each other apart. And Jason sat on it and challenged it and challenged it and challenged it. So actually, we are going to be a community that are, are dazzled by each other, where the guys and the girls actually learn how to appropriately say to each other, you are awesome. Because culture says to teenage boys and girls, the only thing you value about each other is a sex potential. And our young people are made for way more than that. Imagine if church could be a place where they could be bedazzled by all that. Brilliant. We understand love languages. How do you receive affirmation? Are you a words person? Or do you prefer somebody to bring a gift, diamonds, as a way of saying, you're great? Or is it time that they say, look, I've cleared the afternoon. I just want to hang out with you. Is that how they receive affirmation? And what words are trigger words? What are the wrong words? And I, I love it when Christian men don't refer to their wives as babes. <laughs> I mean, they might well be a babe, but she's so much more. And I love it when Christian women don't roll their eyes about their husband's inability to do X, Y, and Z and just champion the stuff they're great at. Absolutely. I, and I, I remember... Oh, my lovely husband sat in the front row. Sorry, Jace. But um, I remember when our daughter was three... Because you've got to have a sense of humour about this as well, haven't you? Um, and we live in a culture that says you only love what's perfect, and we know that's an absolute lie, don't we? Actually, it's, we love more when we see imperfections and people's real humanity coming through, don't we? Isn't that true? Um, and so I remember waking up one morning and my hair was all over the place and makeup halfway down my face, and I was wearing pyjamas that had gone grey and threadbare, and I shuffled down to breakfast. And our daughter has this ability of just sitting and looking at you quite intently and just sort of gazing at you and then announcing something. And so she, she did this. She just looked at me for a while, and then she said in front of Jason, uh, Mummy, does Daddy sometimes find you a bit yucky? <laughs> I was like, no, darling. Your father is always intoxicated by my beauty. <laughs> Brilliant. Wonderful. So number one, be dazzled. And also, love this. As the father looks at you, he doesn't go, oh. The father goes, wow, look at my daughter. Look at my son. Look at the way when no one else was looking, they did that thing. 
Look at the way that they just have reached out to me when actually experience is teaching them, don't trust, and yet they've just trusted there. The father looks at you and he is dazzled. He's intoxicated with you. He loves you with a wild abandon. Amazing. So let's be dazzled. Number two, so the second big idea for us as we live out wisdom in all our relationships is pull together. Pull together. There's conflict in our world. There's conflict in our communities. There's conflict in our families. There are people who feel the only way to act is to pull apart, who maybe have been so hurt and bruised and wounded themselves, they don't know how to pull together. And we, as a body of Christ, we are people that whatever our relationships are, whether we are single, married, uh, loving life and love, struggling with relationships, that we choose to pull together. And in Proverbs 3, 3, it says this, let steadfast love and faithfulness never leave you. And the writer goes on to say, bind them round your neck and write them on your heart, i.e., be so like over the top upfront about this steadfast love and faithfulness malarkey that it's like you're wearing it. It's like when people look at you, they go, whoa, steadfast love and faithfulness. Because when you're in the board meeting, you don't badmouth the people that aren't in the room. You are faithful. That when you're on a business trip, you don't get involved in the stuff that some of your colleagues do, even to keep the clients happy, because your life is marked by faithfulness. And you're faithful to what God says about you as well. When you look in the mirror, you don't speak over yourselves, oh, you ugly idiot. You say, I actually want to be faithful to what God says I am, who God says I am. And even though I'm struggling to see myself as beautiful and made in his image, the truth that I want to absorb into my heart is that I am wonderfully and fearfully made. And we wear our beauty. We wear our beauty. And it's beautiful in this passage in Proverbs 3.3. The Hebrew for steadfast love, if you're making notes, is hesed. And do ask Andrew, the PhD student, how to um, pronounce these words. I don't know. But um, hesed. And hesed, steadfast love. That is the word that's used to describe God's love in Scripture. This steadfastness. It's this idea of covenant, of bonding, of binding yourself to another person. And this is why, as Christians, we very much believe that sexual intimacy is not just saved for a committed, dating, loving, moving in together love, as brilliant and as true and as good as those relationships can be. But actually what we do is we take it one step further because our model of steadfast love is God binding himself to us And so sexual union in marriage is that covenant. We're bonded together and what God joins together, let nobody separate. So steadfast love. And then the second word, MF, is faithfulness. This idea of reliability and dependability. Without this kind of faithfulness, the trust that creates meaningful relationship is impossible. And one of the big messages that I always give to young people, whether they are Christians or not, is that God is always faithful to us. So we choose to always be faithful to each other. So how do we pull together? Well, I think we can do this in marriages and we're dating in friendships. We create memories together. We talk about the tough stuff together. We resolve our conflicts as family. We, um, we create maybe a sense of sharing our dreams and our hopes and our vision and our failures. 
That maybe church could be a place where rather than putting on a Christian mask, we say, Lord, as I gather with your people, help me to lay down the weapons of attack and defense and to be and to say sorry and to say I forgive you and to reach across the aisle and sit where you don't normally sit and pull together, pull together. Thank you. A very clappy bunch. I love this. So number one, be dazzled. Number two, pull together. And number three, stay open. What is to mark out our relationships is that we are people who choose to stay open to the person that we are in relationship with, to remain open-hearted, even if our heart is wounded and our heart is hurt, that we remain open-hearted. We stop loving, don't we, when we stop giving. We know we've stopped loving somebody when we want to withhold rather than give to them. We stop loving when we stop communicating. And sadly, how too often in churches, that's the way we do it. We just stop talking to the people that we don't agree with. Or we just stop talking to the people that we don't like. And contempt is a hardening of our heart. It's closing ourselves off to the people that we say that we love. And so Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The health of our hearts matter because everything we do flows from it. Behavior is belief. You want to know what I believe? Look at what I do. If you actually want to know what I believe about love, look at me with my daughter. Oh, If you actually want to know how much I feel God could challenge me, look at me with my husband. And one of the things I do do sometimes, and you're in the front row, Jase, is one of the things I do do is I withhold. I say, actually, I'm a bit hurt. I don't agree with you, so I'll just go quiet. Hmm? No, let's not talk about it. I'm rising above it. And essentially what I'm saying is, actually, I'm right, you're wrong, you deal with it. And I wonder how many others of you know that in your own lives. So what does it mean to guard your heart? And for those of us in this room today who have been hurt in relationships, who maybe today are saying, I just need to come back to life because actually I've been so wounded, so bruised, so hurt. I've loved and I was rejected. Hearing someone say, guard your heart, can sound like scripture is saying, shut your heart down. The way to guard your heart is to stop anybody getting in. But that's not what we believe, is it? And that's not what guarding something means. When you guard something, it's not to stop everything getting in, but it's to keep an eye on what is coming in. Are the people coming into this city people who are going to bring life to the city, or are they going to bring death? We're going to be vigilant. And that is what Scripture encourages us. As we reach out in love to others, let's have our eyes open and to be wise. And the... uh, the people, the, as Proverbs writer was writing, he was instructing Israel to guard their heart, not because they perceived the heart to be the seat of emotion, which is a very 21st century, 20th century notion, but that your heart is who you are. It's the sum of you. It's your personality, your character, your life experience. It's you. Guard. Protect yourself. Who has influence over your life? Who are you giving influence to? Who is shaping who you're becoming? Are you handing over too much of the reins of that to outside forces who don't care that you grow to become more like Christ? It's why we drench ourselves in Scripture. We want to hear God's Word. We want to be shaped by God's Word. So how do we do this then? Well, the Proverbs writer says, 
that we do it. It doesn't say God guard your hearts, it says you guard your hearts. Like, make decisions. And often when I'm speaking with young Christian teenagers, um, and they, they sometimes say things like, what happens if Christians take drugs? I say, they get high. Like, the same consequences apply. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that somehow God does something different with the drugs you take into your body. Actually, we need to make choices. And I remember as a teenage girl, years ago, when I first started I started kind of going out with Christian boys. I remember one Christian boy, and I was about 16, and I started dating him. And I kind of thought, well, he's a Christian, so if he says it's okay to do something, then it must be okay. Because I thought, oh, that's all right. I haven't got to think for myself. And it's so important that we remember that actually God expects us to make choices, to make decisions, to reach out to others, to ask for help, to say, would you encourage me in this? Will you help me how to know if this is a relationship I should pursue or not? Could you give me some of your wisdom? Because I want to make good choices. I don't want to slide. I want to decide. But also we see in Scripture in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, Paul says this. And it sounds like a contradiction. Listen to this. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will what? Guard your hearts. Ah. So in this passage, Paul is saying, we don't guard our hearts. God does it. God does it by, as a promise as we bring our anxious requests to him. So it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be anxious. God expects us to bring our anxious requests to him. That he will then, the promise is, he will protect our hearts with his peace. So what do we do with that? Well, I think, friends, it's both, isn't it? It's both. We say, God, there are some things that only you can do. There's some stuff that only you can see. There's aspects of my character and who I am and stuff that I need healing from that only you can do. God, will you come and meet my deepest needs so I am not a risk to myself and others in this relationship, that I bring all of this to you and then I am free to pursue these godly relationships, free to be a good friend to my colleagues at work, free to love my neighbor, free to love my spouse, free to love my stepchildren without needing them to fill this deep void within me. Such wisdom from Scripture. So if contempt is hardening our heart towards someone, and if we want to remain open-hearted and pull together and be dazzled in our relationships and have our eyes on what God wants us to have our eyes on, then actually the challenge is that we start not with those relationships, but by remaining open-hearted and giving towards God. So friends, when was the last time that we hardened our hearts towards God. The last time that we said, I know you've got something to say about this, but I just don't want to hear it. I know you want me to forgive them, but I'm just not ready. I know that actually really what I need to do is not just buy one can for the food bank, but just like bless a family with a whole shop, but God, you know my own budget. So I'd rather not pray, Lord, tell me what to do, because I think I know what you're going to tell me to do. I don't want to do it. Like, do you do those prayers? I do it. Jason and I are unable to have our own children. And I remember, actually, my heart getting quite hard to God. I was like, God, almost you owe me. Like, I've tried to be a really good Christian girl. And the teenagers I work with them, some of them get pregnant just by looking at each other. Just note to self, that doesn't happen. But I just stop it out there. 
Like, God, you owe me. Like, and if I say, God, have your way in my life, I think I know what you're going to do. You might take that and say, Rachel, you're never going to be a mum. And praise the Lord for fostering and adoption. Beautiful path to becoming parents. Beautiful path. But God has good things for us. And as we open our hearts to him, he's not like somebody else who might have rejected us. He doesn't let us go. God holds us. God loves us. And in the Old Testament, as the people of God showed contempt against God, as they chased other gods, as they worshipped idols, as they kept spitting in God's face, listen to these words that God spoke through his prophet Jeremiah. This is how God responds. When we say, God, I don't know if I can trust you with this. I don't know, I really want to get married and all I see is that everyone else is married apart from me and if I give this to you, you might say, single for life and I don't want that, la, 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 la. All these things that we've all been there, we've been there. And this is what God says, Israel, out looking for a place to rest, met God out looking for them. God comes looking for us. Sometimes we walk around acting as if, I've got to get my stuff together, I've got to get my heart open to God, I've got to sort this stuff out before, and then I can go to God. And God goes, hi, I'm here. You're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting you here. I'm not ready yet. And he's like, I'm here. And this is what Elsie says. God told them, I've never quit loving you and never will. Expect love, love and more love. How God responds to our hard heart isn't try harder, do better, stop moaning, start trusting. He doesn't say that. He says, get ready for this. Are you ready for this? Love. And are you ready for this? More love. Are you ready for this? More love. When we first had our little daughter, and she was 15 months old, and we had to teach her to do things like run to us when she was sad and, and needed love and help. And so we invented something called the fully full hugs. And my husband or I would hug her, and we'd, and we'd go, are you full of love yet? And she'd say, yeah, I'm fine, and run off. Or another time she'd say, no, not yet. And we'd hug more. Mm, are you full of love yet? No, no, more, mommy. More. Ding, 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 ding. Fully full. That's how God loves us. He loves us with a fully full love. Expect love, love, and more love. And it could be that this conversation about relationships is stirring up for you questions. You're going to go and mull over them, chat with someone over lunch. Maybe it's stirring up something a bit deeper, some pain, some fear even. Well, in Mark's gospel, there's a wonderful story of Jesus on the mountain praying. He's just fed the 5,000. And he comes down from the mountain and his disciples are on the lake and a storm whips up. And scripture tells us in Mark 6, Jesus walks on the water towards them. And then it says in Mark, he goes as if to pass them by. I mean, that, what's that about? Is he like regularly walking on the water? I don't know. Anyway, and he sees them in their fear and they cry out to him. And what does he do? Does he shout from afar? Don't worry, I can, I can do this one. You've just seen the 5,000 feds. What's your problem? He gets in the boat and meets them in their fear. He meets them in their fear. So whatever this is raising for you, whatever hopes, desires, questions, feelings, God meets you right here. Let's just pray, shall we? Thank you, Father God, that you created relationships and you love us and we are in relationship with you. Thank you that you love us with an abundance that takes our breath away. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.